Well, last week we talked about um, the new world that was promised. We looked at Isaiah 11 and um, the promises of this new world uh, that was brought by the little child that was bringing, um, bringing this new world into existence. And the three things that we looked at were justice, peace, and delight in the Lord. Um, basically, it was a promise of the world being set right, everything being set right. And this week we'll talk um, about how this new world arrives. So that was the promised world. This is like the arrival of this new world. And Christmas is a celebration of the beginning of this new world arriving. And it came in humility and glory, which is what we're going to focus on in a bit. This new world arrives in humility and glory. Mostly what we're going to look at is uh, verse 14. So keep your Bible open because we'll be going back to it or your app open. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is this word? Um, who is, first, let's talk about the humility aspect of the new world arriving in humility. Who is the word? Well, in the beginning it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So it's a capital W word because word equals God, basically. Um, there before time was the word, was God himself. And through this word, everything was created. Literally everything that we see in this world was created through this word. Everything that could possibly exist came into being in here. Now it's clear from the end of verse 14 that what John is talking about, this word, is about the Son. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. So the word is God, the word is the Son. And John is talking about Jesus. And this word, this God, the Son, Jesus, became flesh. I think, I mean, John could have put that in lots of different ways. He could have said Jesus became a man, or he could have said Jesus had a body, but he didn't. He says Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh. This is probably like the most blunt way of saying that Jesus took on human nature and everything that can be associated with that. Jesus' body isn't some kind of temporary sleeve. He's taking on the very nature of humanity. The body he now inhabits. He has a body now. He's still in a human body, and that's with him forever. So I think that's pretty huge, and um, maybe it's easy to overlook the fact that Jesus um, you know, became a man. First off, it means that God is more than, idea, than an idea. Like this just kind of generic God idea of, uh, well, this generic God out there is for me or something like that. Or it ends up kind of being the idea of the universe, like the hope in the universe providing something for you, some kind of cosmic power, a depersonalized but kind of powerful force. But Jesus isn't like that. He's God. And he's not just abstracted, though, because he's also like us. He's human. And he was born as a baby. And as far as we know, it wasn't really a silent night. I mean, a baby being born, it's not quiet. Mary would have been screaming. Joseph would be freaking out. And Jesus would be crying because he's a baby. He really did become flesh. And Jesus, when he was alive, he didn't keep like a monk-like life either. He made his dwelling among us. That's what verse 14 says. Uh, he was among us. He ate with people. He talked with people. His feet were gross, just like everyone else at the time. He probably didn't always smell good, just like everyone else at the time. He spent his time as a human with other humans. He had the same problems of people at this time. If he was hungry, he would feel hunger. He wasn't rich. He had sleepless nights. He was susceptible to sickness. He grew up. Jezus went through puberty. He survived. He had a life. Sometimes our versions of Christ's biography is like, he was born, and then he died, and resurrected, and then maybe ascended. 
but we don't often talk about things. We talk about his birth and his death, but the majority of, of the Gospels are about his life. He lived a normal life, and most of his life, actually, we don't even really know that much about. He was just kind of living a normal human life. And so we shouldn't miss out on the majority of his life that the, uh, the Gospels really talk about. He actually lived among us, and that's important because he didn't just drop in to die. He didn't die as a baby, like, you know, then covering the sins of the world. He didn't live a life separate from those he came to save. He was with us. And that means there is no place that you have been that God hasn't been as well, that God hasn't actually experienced, literally experienced himself. Now, he may not have experienced your, like, specific, unique situation, like how to sleep train your child. Like, Jesus never had to figure that out. Um, what, would he, what would Jesus do? I don't know. Um, but he knows from his own experience what frustration is like, what joy is like, what lack of sleep is like, what being let down is like. And sometimes in our pride, if we go through hard times, we think we're alone, or we have a kind of difficulty, and we think, well, surely nobody knows what it's like. Like, I am the only one who has experienced this before, so not only can no one tell me how to act, no one can know what it's like, and we just feel lonely about it. But there's a pride in that, because we think we're so unique, no one could possibly understand what we're going through. But the good news is we're not that unique. I mean, we're different, yeah, but we're not all that different. I mean, at the very least, there's been one who knows what your life has been like, even more than you do. And actually, it's reversed, because Christ knows about our experience, what it's like. But we do not know what his experience must have been like. To be, have been God from the eternal, all-knowing, omnipresent God, like living perfect life in the Trinity, to kind of come down to earth and take up a human body, to become like that he has created, and not only that, to experience rejection from those who's created as he's trying to bring them to life. But I mean, that's something we will never know. We will never know what it's like to be Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. We don't know what it's like to be him. Now, Jesus does more than know our experience, though, because he's present. He made his dwelling with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's here with us. Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling, and through the Holy Spirit, now there is no removing ourselves from God. We're never alone. And that means to know Jesus, to be close to him, to be part of what he's doing, to be holy or spiritual, none of this requires to, uh, us to live like kind of monkish lives. You know, none of this, uh, if, if I say, like, oh, what does a holy person look like? You might be like, oh, I don't know, someone who's rejected um, meat or, like, refined sugar or they only have one pair of clothes um, and they're alone by themselves a lot because they have to, like, commune with God all the time. Or, you know, whatever kind of the generic ideas of, like, what a holy person looks like. That's just not it. To get to Jesus, we don't have to live a kind of, we don't have to have a certain kind of consumerism, a certain kind of diet or a certain kind of diary. I mean, those things might be good. But they aren't the path to God because Jesus himself, through what we're reading here, made himself the path to God. Jesus is God and is the path to God himself. And we can't come to God when we can barely keep things together ourselves. But the good news of Christmas is that he came to us. So maybe having less clothes might be a good practice for some of us. Rejecting the consumerist industrial complex, well, that's maybe a good thing too. Um, rejecting that, sometimes maybe that is a byproduct of following Jesus. But those things don't get us any closer to God. Only Jesus does that. So that's Jesus in his humility. Um, let's briefly talk about Jesus in his glory. Verse 14 um, does talk about glory. It's not just humility. Um, so we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And this glory that, that the Son has is a unique glory. Um, it's the one and only Son's glory. A glory is not something maybe we use really often. It's like um, honor or adoration or, or giving praises. I mean, when an actor wins some kind of film award, there's glory involved. Like They go up on a stage, everyone claps, millions are tuning in. Everyone's like literally watching them, hanging on their words, everything they say. Glory is worship in a, in a, in a respect. But glory is also radiance. Like if the queen was to summon you to her presence, sorry, Christine, that's not really going to happen. But if she was, uh, there would be a glory about meeting the queen, especially for people who really love the queen. And, and like the architecture and, and the, the process, and there's probably like a whole formality of things you do or you don't do or you get killed or something like that. There's, that's an element of the queen's glory. You, you would feel it in her presence. And this is what John is talking about with Jesus, a glory unlike everything else this world has. It's a complete, unique kind of glory. The glory of the one and only Son. The one and only Son means there's none like Him. Nothing in this world can compare. This Son came from the Father, God the Father, and the Son was full of grace and truth. So the reason this glory is unique is because this person is unique. Nobody else is God and man. Nobody else will ever be again. Jesus is eternally God, eternally man. And God and John, who is writing this, literally means he has seen him with his own eyes. He's like, we have seen this glory. John isn't saying, like, uh, because I know Jesus, I've seen it. He's like literally saying, because I've looked at Jesus with my own eyes, I've seen the glory of God himself. They have seen the glory. Though unlike a popular film star, this glory wasn't always well received. Many missed it. And we often do in our lives. So the Son in glory came from the Father. So if the first part of humility was about Jesus really being man, and, and this part, that he came from the Father, is really about him being God. Jesus was, and is, and always will be fully God. Just because he was born as a human baby didn't mean he stopped being God. I mean, that idea that kind of like blows my mind. How in the world could a baby also be God? I have no idea, it's a complete mystery. But as a friend of mine has put it in the past, it wasn't like Mary's womb was a security checkpoint where Jesus had to remove his deity before boarding the plane to earth. It was a completely God. I don't How did Jesus do his miracles? Well, he, he was God. That's what God does. He does crazy, amazing things. How did Jesus teach with authority in such a way that people go without days for eating just to hang on his words? Well, he was God. This is God speaking to man. How did Jesus know what others were thinking all the time? Obviously he could because he was God. The power of Jesus being God is expressed perfectly in the fact that he was born as a baby because someone who feared would, someone who would fear not being powerful enough would come with an army or would come with some kind of really powerful politician or would come with some kind of earthly power that we can understand and we can get. Only God in his humor and his power would come as something that the world sees as helpless. That without the power of God at work really has no power on its own. So John was witness to the glory of the Son, the glory of the person who is 100% man and 100% God. And there's another reason why Christmas is good news for us. Because if, if Jesus was only 100% man, he'd be very compassionate, but he wouldn't really be able to do anything. He would understand our misery. He could sit with us in our misery, but he couldn't pull us out of it. But if, if Jesus was only 100% God, we would have a holy God who never went through our human experience. And he would never interact with us because we could never get ourselves to him. Jesus is both. And this is part of his glory. Because only Jesus can go to the cross on our behalf and be killed as a man, and only Jesus can resurrect himself and now reign over us as God. He's not only God, 
He is the path to God. He is the way, as he says himself. Now, Jesus' birth was um, humble and glorious, and that's what happens when God is present with us. When God is present with us, humility and glory uh, live side by side. Eugene Peterson's like wonderful translation of this in, in the message is the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Like literally like thinking of Jesus like moving into like a flat down the street here in Charlton. What would that be like? That the way that he's, the words he's translating there um, that, that the NIV says made his dwelling um, is a verb form of, of tabernacle. Jesus, so Jesus tabernacled with us. Like that's not something we would say normally because we don't tabernacle often. Um, but the tabernacle in the Old Testament was where God would show his glory while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. It's basically where God's glory resided when, while they were wandering without a home. And then when they did have a home and they built a temple, they put the tabernacle in the center. And it was like the symbol of God's glory for all of Israel. The centerpiece. Now whether wandering or rooted... God was with them, and he would use the tabernacle as a display of his glory, a display of who he is. And though that is glorious, it's also humiliating for God to be like, contained into a small like box that's humility and glory residing side by side. The humility of God himself taking on our nature to bring us into his. This humility, this glory has moved into our neighborhood. It chose to be present with us. And through Christ's humility, his glory is among us. So what does, I mean, these are all kind of big theological ideas, like humility and glory and Jesus doing this in tabernacles and things like this. What does Jesus' humility and glory look like in our daily lives? What could it look like for Jesus to truly be present? I think Jesus' presence in our everyday lives leads to trust and it leads to awe. His presence in our everyday lives which means his humility and his glory in our everyday lives leads us to trust and leads us to awe. The first thing about trust is Jesus' birth as a baby illustrates Jesus' utter trust in the care of the Father. Without the Father caring for him, like he's completely helpless. Born not just into a hateful regime, like if we think our politics are bad. I mean, Herod is literally like murdering babies. We're not there yet. <laughs> Hopefully we we'll never will be. Um, I mean, if you think like right wing or leftist, like this, they have nothing on Herod, right? Herod's pretty bad. He's a bad dude. And this, and yet into that chaos, Jesus, the God of the universe, is born as a helpless baby. So the same way that Jesus trusts the Father, we ought to trust God. Because we're in a much better situation ourselves, our own lives, than a helpless baby born into a regime that's killing helpless babies. And it should also lead us to awe, because the glory of God is something that brings people to their knees. It makes their legs shake. Their mouths are silenced. The experience of awe is overwhelming for us in finite beings. I mean, whenever uh, a person in the Bible interacts with God or an angel or whatever, like the very first thing you often hear is, don't be afraid. Like, take courage. Don't, don't fear. Basically, because it's a scary thing. Glory is an overwhelming thing. How can we have awe in a bar? Like, with this stuff. How can we have awe at our workplace on Thursday afternoon? Is awe just for like Sunday mornings and like places that feel really spiritual? Or when we're like away by ourselves with our Bible? You know, all the, all the times we have time for that? Well, it's not in the architecture that brings glory or the um, decor. It's not the context. It's the presence of God himself in our lives. 
If we aren't experiencing awe in our lives, we might have the wrong definition. Like it's a feeling or some kind of like um, uh, good feeling or something like that. Or we might just be missing it. Because the glory of God was found in a very regular looking person with manual laborers as his followers from some small backwater town. He's born in a barn. That doesn't sound glorious because we have the wrong definition of glory. He is God and that's what makes the story glorious. That's what makes him glorious. And so people missed it. People did not receive him because they didn't understand what he was about. We saw that all the time in Mark, didn't we? People constantly missing the glory of Christ in their life. And so we can experience awe in our everyday lives because all of us carry the presence of God with us through the Holy Spirit. It may not look glowing or radiant on the outside. It might look a little bit shabby. But everywhere we go is holy ground because God is with us. Everything we do can be empowered by God himself. The words we say can be God's words through us because God is with us. That's amazing. One of the things that makes the symbol of bread and wine so amazing is that they are very basic. They're no frills. You can get more simple as a food than bread. I don't know, maybe like soup? I don't know. What is there anything more simple than bread for food? Couscous. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. You had the one ready. That's good. Um, well, even less than couscous. These are no frills. Uh, nothing amazing or out of the ordinary. And yet what they symbolize, what these things point to, um, is the most amazing thing this world has ever seen. In this humble loaf, there's a symbol of the glory of Christ. A very ordinary thing that now stands for something so much more. The bread stands for the presence of God in our lives. And that can be a reality because Jesus, who was born as a baby, he lived his life, would grow up and... Uh, perform and act on the cross on our behalf for us. He would be killed. He'd be broken. He'd be tortured, and his blood would be poured out. So his bread was broken so that our bodies don't have to be. Look forward to this a bit. And his body, or his blood, was poured out on our behalf so we would never taste the kind of death that he died. And Jesus did all of this so that we can experience the glory of God. In these humble forms, we get to experience the glory of God. The ultimate humility of Jesus was him hanging on a cross, actually put to death by the ones that he created. He experienced that ultimate humility so that we could experience real life, so that we could experience his life. So this table is for everyone who's experienced Jesus' life, for those who are connected to Jesus' glory. If you can't say that's who you are, then this isn't for you. Please don't take it. It could be, though, that this is a time to humbly accept and surrender to Christ's glory and surrender in trust, surrender in awe above us, ourselves. And that's true for all of us, whether we um, say we follow Jesus or not. All of us can surrender more to trust and to awe in our lives. But if this is maybe the first time, if that's the case, um, please eat and drink with us. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer to do this. And for all of us who are eating and drinking, um, there are lots of emotions we can take, lots of things we can think, be thinking about. Just giving this kind of briefer, uh, more brief sermon today. Let's do it with the gratitude and the joy that Jesus, who saw that we were in the dark, who saw we were helpless, needing rescue, came down, born as a child, to one day rescue us. So if we come trusting, let's trust in him more. We come in awe of him. Let's find more places of that awe in our lives we maybe overlooked or missed. Let me pray.